This is NBR's People in Business, a compilation of this week's top stories about leading New Zealand entrepreneurs and business people over on nbr.co.nz. Visit our website and sign up for full access to this and other great video content featuring the best in business. With us now is Perpetual Guardian's General Counsel, Henry Stokes. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. So you're sort of pushing for a threshold to increase to $50,000. Why is that? Well, currently the threshold is only 15000 uh, It has been at that level since 2009. And as you would hear, there's a lot of discussion around the cost of living crisis things are becoming ever more expensive and the value of the dollar is decreasing on a very uh, quick basis. So 15000 is a very, very low figure and it's quite easy to actually pass away with having that amount in assets because it's assets in general, it's not just cash. Uh, but even for younger people who have KiwiSaver, it's often quite easy to reach that sort of level. But then the cost of obtaining probate, which is what is required if you pass away and you do have a will, or if you don't have a will, uh, letters of administration are required, is, is actually a quite costly process that is required. And... The cost of obtaining probate or letters of administration isn't actually affected by the value of the assets that you've left behind. So if you do have only 15000 and probate is necessary, the cost of obtaining probate is actually going to take a decent chunk of that 15000 And if you also combine the cost of a funeral chances are there won't even just be nothing left, but that family members might even have to dip into their own pockets to cover some of those costs. So it really is a case of that to require formal administration for only 15000 it's far too low. Why bring this up now? It's been in place since 2009. What issues have arisen for you to sort of push your you so far? I th- it, it has been an, an issue for a number of years now. Um, however, I think at present it simply really is becoming a increasing issue. Uh, the costs of administration have increased over the last few years uh, and I think that that is something that we will continue to see happen. Uh, and so it's it's simply eating more and more into the actual assets that are there. And, and when there's such minimal assets, it makes things extremely difficult. Particularly if, you know, you have a family, for example, uh, and if the person who's passed away happens to be young, they're, they're dealing with that tragedy that they've got on their hands uh, and often they, they they want to use something that's been left behind to, to sort of give some type of legacy, particularly to a younger person. And then they, they see everything that is left there disappear before their eyes 
Uh, and then the, they not only have to deal with the tragedy, but then they can't even leave some type of legacy or or have something there in that type of vein to to remember the person that they've lost. Are you hearing more and more examples of this right now? Yes, yes, we do, unfortunately. And and KiwiSaver does happen to be a big one. The number of people that do have... Kiwi saver and it's and it's slowly ticking away, etc. It, it almost becomes one of those type of forgotten assets that people don't necessarily think of it as an asset as such because they're not going to be able to get their hands on it until later in life and it, it ticks away in the background. Um, so when we do see younger ones pass away, they've often not given thought to putting a will in place. Um, or doing any type of planning because they consider that they don't have much. Why have you selected $50,000? Why not 100000 or more? Yeah, I think it's, it is it is a case of that you do need formal administration to kick in at some point. And it's, it's a case of what can be achieved um, at a reasonable price in comparison with the actual costs of administration. Uh, and I do think that that 50k again, although in today's terms it's not a massive or large amount of money, it is still a, a decent amount to require formal administration to kick in at at a certain level. I, I think in modern terms it, it's an appropriate level. It's also a figure that we're we're more likely to get shift from government when you're talking about a current figure of 15, which of course is a highly conservative figure, um, to to push them up to 50 in itself will probably take some work. To push them higher than that, I think we'd be um, um, yeah coming up against a brick wall. I think in that respect. And it's the government that needs to act here. Is that who you're calling on? Yes, it is. So the Ministry of Justice have the ability to actually change this figure uh, without requiring any changes to statute uh, or actually being passed through the uh, House of Parliament itself. Uh, They can pass regulation to change the figure from the current 15, uh, and that would go through as as what's referred to as being a order in council. So there is a very clear process already in place to achieve that. It's not particularly complicated, and it can actually be dealt with quite quickly. Mm. What's the example overseas? How is it done in other countries? So there, and it varies from jurisdiction to, to jurisdiction, but uh, New Zealand is, is basically a, a very conservative uh, country in comparison with the, with the rest, and, and we are definitely one of the lower figures in the developed world. Um, and even in terms of the, the use of technology itself, as, as well as just looking at the figures side of things, um, when we apply for probate here in New Zealand, it's still very heavily paper-based, uh, and the, the applications all go through the High Court. Um, over in the UK, which is not so much 
viewed in comparison with a younger country like New Zealand for moving quickly, you can actually make uh, applications digitally to the court to obtain probate, whereas we're still uh, taking very slow steps in that respect. So overall, when it comes to processes for dealing with death, we're still very conservative. So now needs to be the time for that change to be made. I, I understand a, another um, lawyer has made a similar call. Um, your your community is obviously pushing for this quite rigor, rigorously. Yes, yes it is. It's, it, it's overdue, I would say, as opposed to even now that uh, now is the time. It's definitely overdue. Um, the increases in, in terms of values of assets in general – uh, have moved substantially in the last five to ten years, uh, and this just has not moved with it. Henry Stokes, thanks for your time. Thank you very much. There's hand-wringing over the increasing use of vapes, but is a prohibitive approach like Australia's the way to go? Dita Deboni asks in this week's Shoeshine. Dita, so the Aussies are having a look at our um, regulations and saying, uh, you know, we're enlightened. I know. It was absolutely amazing. But I, obviously I didn't read every 900, all 900 um, submissions to the, this committee that had come up with the, the rules around Australian vaping, which has come out this week or last week. Um, but I did read some of them. And a constant theme was how New Zealand has a very enlightened scheme for vaping. We agree with or we kind of facilitate recreational use whereas in Australia they've really tried to clamp down on that and they've said you've got to have a prescription from a pharmacy to get vapes with nicotine in them. Um, only one to two percent of people actually do that through the proper channels. The rest of them order it online from New Zealand. So New Zealand retailers and suppliers are doing a roaring trade. Yes, and I was amazed to read that. I didn't realise that that was happening. So we've actually had New Zealanders submitting on this law because they're yes. going to be affected. Absolutely. There were several New Zealand um, groups in there represented. Yeah. So look, um, would we see an excise on vapes, do you think? I mean, we've got the budget coming up. Is that a realistic prospect? That was kind of what sort of triggered me into writing about this because I had heard from some I, I live in a neighbourhood in Balmoral in Auckland where there's lots of vape stores like probably many other areas and a few of the owners have talked about the possibility of an excise tax. Now this excise tax is not um, in place in lots of other places in the world but it is in the US for example. In Vermont 92% tax is put on all vaping products um, for example. So they're really trying to and, and what that does is stop people and particularly young people vaping so much. So I thought there might be a possibility now that we're having a bit of a panic about all these young people who are vaping. If they apply an excise tax to, to vaping products they may see a reduction in youth use of of the products. That's what's happened obviously in cigarettes as we know um, the, the usage of cigarettes has gone way down but then again so has the excise tax. So you would imagine the government might be looking at a way to refill its coffers. There's been a lot of research about vaping versus smoking and a lot of money pumped into it mm. by the cigarette companies yes. ironically. Do, are we any clearer on whether vaping is actually safe? I mean, as a journalist, um, I, I don't feel I have any sort of ability to judge that. But I do think, from what I could see, the weight 
of of what is being written is that yes, there is an effect on the body. Um, there is an effect on the lungs and on the you know on the heart, but. It is not as bad as cigarette smoke, obviously. It's the combustibility of cigarettes. So when you light the cigarette and you puff on it, um, it releases all these nasty things into your body. That obviously doesn't happen with vaping, um, but it does have an effect on your body. So I think they're still trying to work out exactly what that effect is. Yeah. Well, in the in the meantime, we're not going down the Aussie route by the sounds of it. Aisha Verrill, the health minister's ruling out a ban. But in your view, do we need one? Um, I tend to agree with David Seymour, which is <laughs> not <laughs> something I would above. ever say normally. <laughs> um, but I think he's right that what's happened is a lot of small retailers and store owners have geared themselves up following the law for a legal product that they can sell. And they're making a lot of money out of it because it's obviously very popular. Um, I think that to suddenly come down with a whole lot of laws, different laws, and they have changed over the years many times, um, it's, it's sort of unfair to business in a way. Um, I think there are things you can do, like an excise tax. There are other ways and means that we can kind of dissuade young people from, from vaping. And the industry would like to see that themselves. That's what they say. They don't think it's a product for under-18s. Um, but, yeah, I, I think the Australian example has created a, a huge black market into which illegal criminals are operating. So I think we need to avoid that if we can and uh, be sensible about it. Dita Deboni, thanks for coming in. Thank you. NBR are offering a free trial to newcomers. See what all the fuss is about on our flagship website, nbr.co.nz. Critical Design is a Kiwi company transforming plastic waste into endlessly recyclable building panels and furniture. And joining me now is co-founder Rui Peng. Hi, Rui. Kia ora, tenakui. It's good to be here. So you co-founded the company as a social enterprise back in 2013 Hi. with then-business partner Andrew Crow. What were, your, what were your aims at the time? Yeah, you're really taking it back, aren't you? Um, we probably started Critical without the intention it was going to be a, a, a clean tech startup of what it is today. Um, but we were part of a community. We were mentoring young people to get them into meaningful work. Um, and we spent about two and a half years doing that, experimented with initial phase, was looking at how do we use 3D printing and design and entrepreneurship to create a business that they might be able to own. And as we journey through that, as we experimented with more products, including plastics, people started bringing us their plastic waste. And um, pretty much at 2018, China stopped buying the rest of the Western world's plastics, right? And, it, and we got a really good look at ourselves in terms of what the infrastructure that we had were capable of doing. Um, so yeah, the, the inspiration came from that. We kind of fell into it, really. We stumbled into this. We, it wasn't intentional, really. Mm. But I'm happy that it's it's here and what it is right now. So you did a bit of a pivot around 2018, and Andy left, and you and um, Adam Ramsfield came in. So can yeah. you sort of talk what what happened at that stage? Yeah, yeah, that's uh, man, you're really taking it back, and I love it. Um, so we, so one of the biggest journeys, you know, for Andy and, and what he's really passionate about is that he's a um, he's a teacher and he loves teaching. Mm-hmm. And he loves to be able to build people's capabilities. At the time, critical, we were shaping up at a crossroads. Do we continue to run? you know, services and workshops and mentoring, well, do we want to pivot into solving a big problem and have a product and technology-focused solution? And so for Andy, it wasn't quite his, his I guess, his, his co-papa. Um, and he went off and, and gone off and done really amazing things. And um, at about the same time, um, Adam and I, we decided that we would continue this on. Um, yeah, so so that was a bit of a, bit of a, 
like many startups, there's always, there's always journeys, there's always pivots, there's always ups and downs and, and stuff that we make. But yeah, Andy's still my best mate and we catch up every day almost. So are both of you full-time in the business or, or, is it, or do you have day jobs? I am, myself. We I'm on there full-time as of um, as of the start of this year. So we managed to be able to fund this. We bootstrap Critical ourselves today. So um, we had part-time jobs and... The other part time, I, I had a I had a twenty hour job as a um, as a consultant at Innocent Young, and then in my other time, uh, if my wife and my kids are happy, we would do critical, and that's you know forty fifty plus. So the hero of the story is probably my wife and Alfano. So yeah. Uh, but Adam retains another job, doesn't he? Adam retains another job, so he sits on the board as an advisor for us. Mm. So um, you hit the media headlines when a tornado tore the roof of your of your fact of your yeah. new factory. How how devastating was that for you? Yeah, it was pretty devastating. I think we um, bef- before then we raised the pre seed between investment sort of uh, friends and whanau investment um, grants and stuff. We raised about half a mil, and we launched a pilot plant over in Papatuitui. Um, and, when the, and it was the day after the tornado hit us and the day after we set everything up and it was hugely devastating. So it took us about six months to recover. Um, it comes to show just how, I guess, prevalent climate change is, even how this, the start of this year has started. It's affected us personally like three times now, yeah. So how do you personally pick yourself up from something like that as an entrepreneur? How, how, how hard is that? Yeah, well, um, I, I guess it goes back to our why and our kaupapa. You know, as um, as a Māori-owned business, you know, we exist to uplift the modi of te taiao, and, and for us it's about being good ancestors for our future generations. So, you know, critical for us is a bit more than an exit in five years but this is you know this is our life's work and it's a problem that we care about because we all have kids and and that drives us that drives everything when things gets really tough plus the the support of Alfano and our community is always massive a part of that journey to to recovery so you did the Startmate Accelerator last year. Yeah. Um, how did you find that? How helpful? It was incredible for us. It was um, it was game changing. So the ability to go, um, I mean, to be selected from 500, I think at the year it was 500 startups, to be one of the cohort of 16 across um, Aussie and New Zealand, it was hugely validating in terms of how good timing is for this opportunity. You know, sustainable products and um, climate change. In a, in a growing industry that requires more materials. So it was massive. They became investors, and we journeyed through 12 weeks of um, a program that helps us to achieve a lot more than we initially thought we could do in that short span of time. So did you come out of that process with a new plan for the business? No, more of a stronger plan. So a, a stronger and a clearer plan was probably the, the best way to describe it. So we knew exactly what we needed to do. We knew exactly who our customers are, how to go after them, and what we needed to invest our money in at the same time as well. So um, Startmate was a was a game-changer game changer for us. So you mentioned investment. Um, do you need more investment, or, or where are you at with that? Yeah, so at the moment, um, we're in a seed investment round. We've uh, we've opened the allocation to 1.5 mil, and we have currently have one point, just under 1.2 mil committed from the likes of um, Soul Capital, um, K1W1, the Anglican Diocese have an impact venture fund, um, and um, some other partners that we have around there too. So there's there's, a, there's about a 300k allocation that we're looking for any strategic investors might be interested to come on board to be able to help us um, mature faster in the market. So what are you going to use that money for? Yeah, so part of our plan, so our plan at Critical, is that we want to um, effectively, effectively do two things. One is that we want, um, in Aotearoa, there is, we import 400,000 tonnes of plastic waste and we send to landfill 330,000 of that tonnes. It's insane, isn't it? So at Critical, 
at the same time, sorry, um, the market size for sustainable materials and panels is $1.7 billion in Aotearoa. Huge market to solve, a huge market opportunity to solve a massive problem for us here at home. We've been developing a novel technology that can take a variety of plastic types and to turn them into what we call the clean stone panels, um, panels for interior fit out as a replacement or sustainable alternatives. But more, um, more excitingly, um, more, I suppose, a key part of our strategy is the development of what we call the critical microfactories. The ability to condense our technology uh, currently is generation two. We want to take it to generation three. We can make more products, make them faster, make them cheaper, and then make it portable so that we can ship our um, technology into every city in the world, starting in Aotearoa, Aussie, and Asia-Pacific countries. So have you got interest from overseas companies and, and, and people wanting to be involved we in have, that? Yeah, like we have interest from designers, um, other retailers, so, so that, that might even be customers of ours. But there's also kind of individual like MIRFs and recyclers. In Asia, plastics is a massive issue. We don't, they don't even have the necessary infrastructure the way that we do here in Aotearoa. Um, so for them, it makes, you know, it, makes, it makes a lot of sense for them to be our partners who may be, be franchised, who may franchise our technology or our system as we scale. So how do you marry your ambition, you know, you were a social enterprise, have you sort of left that alone and you're now just focused on being a company that has a, a good sustainable outcome? Yeah, I've always felt, you know, like in my 20s, um, I've always felt wrongly so that, that, that there was a dichotomy between either you are a, a successful commercial enterprise um, or an organisation for social impact. And that was like the struggle that I've had. I've always felt like, man, if I, if I went down this route, I'm going to sell out on my social values, right? I met this mentor, this guy called Pat Sneedon, and he effectively, he said so many things that changed me. But one of the things he said to me was, Rory, like your commitment to your social and commercial outcomes sorry, your commitment to your commercial outcomes is a commitment to your social impact over the long term. So for us, what it means for us, you know, um, as a Māori-owned business, but also as a kaupapa Māori business, is that um, as we create a compelling commercial product, it is the way that we use that profit and use that money that really matters. And for us, that's about kaitiakitanga and manakitanga. So how will you use the profits? Yep, so every um, every business in Aotearoa technically has a responsibility to Te Tiriti o Waitangi. And for us, it means a couple of things. It means, first of all, prioritising other Māori and Pacifica suppliers is, is integral to our supply chain. Um, it also means about prioritising more Māori and Pacifica hires within our workforce. Now, we're a startup. We're only a team of eight, so we're very small. But we have these ambitions, and now we have the backing of impact investors, which means that there will be these will be the basis of how we make our decisions as we continue to grow and scale. Okay. What would you say has been your hardest moment in business? Yeah, man, I wouldn't say there was being one hard moment, but many hard moments. Um, I mean, the tornado was certainly one of those. I think um, oftentimes when you think about entrepreneurship, you think about, you think this highlight reel of going from zero to one and, and, and having massive success, but the reality is that it's just a grind. And, um, you know, you, you might pursue a particular deal or contract that, you, you know, they gave you the, your, your customer gave you the vibe that they committed to and all of a sudden they pulled out and then there's other opportunities that you think might happen and then the, the, the kind of the shaking confidence of the economic recession comes and, and things shift and change. And so I think um, there's a lot of moments and I've probably got too many to count on my fingers. Um, but what drives us is the ability to be able to see this future um, in there's a, there's, a, there's a really good good story told by Justice Joe Williams. All right. Well, thanks for your time, Rui Ping. No worries. It's good to be here. 
The antecedent to beloved French bakery Panaton was established in Auckland in 1986 by French pastry chef Dominique Colombier and his wife Celia, and over 30 years later remains owned and run by the couple, though there have been a few storms to weather throughout that time. Dominique joins me now alongside General Manager Thibault Bojo to talk about where the business came from and where it's going. Thank you very much for coming in. Um, Dominique, tell us about um, how you've established this beloved brand in Auckland. Um, we, we just uh, started started to do what we liked and what we thought people would like. And uh, day after this, you know, it grew and uh, I've got no other explanation. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you can tell us about... Um, <laughs> what you found when you came here, why did you think there was a gap in the market that you could fill? Why did you think that? Yes, we, we just, um, when we first came in 1982, uh, we thought, you know, we could do something a little bit different on the, on the food scene uh, in, in Auckland. And we came back in 86 and opened La Tartarie at the time in, at the bottom of Cover Pass. Right, yeah. And did people sort of flock to you because you were French or because you were offering something completely new? Um, definitely something totally new at the beginning, but it, it wasn't an, an instant start. You know, it took it took a while to develop as well. It took four years for the, the business to run nicely. Um, yeah, but we, we were different and uh, doing nice coffee, nice pastry, so people came back. That's yeah. amazing. Over time, there has become more competition in this space, hasn't there? Probably more European people coming to New Zealand, setting up these food operations. Have you found that the general level of, of sort of sophisticated food has gone up over the time? Oh, definitely, definitely. What, what happened as well, uh, uh, at the beginning, the old market uh, um, developed um, like, for example, when we first started in, uh, in Cabo Pass, uh, we, were, we were, we had customers from Montedon, from uh, uh, Epsom, from Panel, from Newmarket, everywhere. And then gradually places opened on those uh, different suburbs. So we had to share a little bit of that. But at, at, after a certain time, everybody develops their own customers and clientele. So everything grows yeah, so right. you share a bigger, bigger cake. <laughs> <laughs> Over time, you've gone from sort of a retail operation of bricks and mortar, now more to wholesale, and you're you're providing product to supermarkets. You've changed, Thibault, You've been bought in to sort of deal, be the front face with supermarkets mm-hmm. and so forth. How would you say the business has evolved in the last, say, five years? Yeah, I think the the the. So the, the business has evolved in a way that, you know, we went from from being, uh, you know, direct to consumer and wholesale uh, business through restaurant, reaching our consumers through restaurants or, or cafe. Um, but at that time, you know, people didn't really know it was um, they were consuming Panetton, Panetton products. Um, you know, over the years, Panetton family have developed a, a range of products that are available in, in supermarkets under our own umbrella brand called Panetton. Um, and, uh, and yeah, today the, the, the business is... is uh, is operating still from St. John's. Uh, we are supplying about 300 supermarkets 
uh, in New Zealand, as well as some some cafe and and, and restaurants. Mm. It's amazing um, that you've managed to to break into so many supermarkets, and you I, I understand that you want to keep doing that. Mm-hmm. Will that involve a scaling up of the business, or are you able to service even more supermarkets from the base that you already have? Yeah, so um, I mean, we we are looking at uh, improving our production capacities every day. You know, that's our that's our day to day job. Is is you know how can we increase the the can we reach the demand into in supermarkets? How can we improve um, our production capacities without compromising the the quality of of, of our products? Mm. Um, you know, so. Yeah, we we find any any improvement possible to to make that happen. So one one big change um, over the last few years was the way we package our products. We've launched new packaging in the in the in the in the market uh, for the last year or so, um, and we've seen that you know helping us almost uh, increase our production capacity by 30%, uh, which is a, a fantastic achievement uh, with, you know, the same number of, of people in in the factory, pretty much. So, um, you know, that's what we need to do is, is always every day reviewing what we do. Is there more efficient ways to, to do it for us as a business to me to be to make sure that we are able to reach New Zealand demand? Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, and Dominic, I know you've been through ups and downs, obviously, like any business owner. Um, COVID was a big one. But I understand that the cyclones, the recent cyclones, had an effect on the business. Yeah, it was a big surprise to us. But when you look back again, you know, a lot of people have been affected financially, personally, you know, the houses uh, destroy and things like that. So the old, uh, the old local economy has, has suffered. A lot, mm-hmm. you know, and so we we part of the local economy, and uh, that's uh, mm. that's how we've been affected. You've well, also moved on and off online, haven't you, to try and deal with the different things yes, that are happening? Can yes, you just explain yeah. a little bit about that? Yeah, uh, when uh, when we had the first um, the first lockdown, we uh, we sort of uh, like we say push the button and open the, the online sale. And that was a huge surprise for us, having such a success. Um, and that's really what saved us uh, for the first lockdown. Mm. We managed to keep some level of business. And that was that was the main thing. Yeah. 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 And, and, and there is a, a more and more demand in terms of, you know, consumers um, buying product online. Um, they are buying actually online from either from our shop or from our, our retailers, you know, whether it is New World, Countdown, you know, Faro. Um, we see as well a trend in click and collect. Right. Um, so we've opened recently um, uh, the, the, the possibility for consumers to come and, and collect from, from direct from our, our factory. Right. And then we rely on, um, on the online shops of our retailers to reach our consumers. And just finally, Thibault, in five years, where would you like to see this business? Uh, will it look different? Yeah, I mean, um, for us, in five years' time, uh, what we would love is, is to, to, 
to have a lot more of our products um, available in, in all supermarkets. Uh, we've got a, a small range of pastries available in the freezers at the moment. Um, we do amazing breads. We would like them to, to, to be on shelf of, of all the supermarkets in, in, in the country. Um, you know, we want to launch innovative uh, products for, for New Zealand consumers. Um, what we don't want to lose is, you know, the heritage, and and we, you know, we are pretty much uh, still very much a family family business. So we still want to keep that culture, that spirit. It's it's really important for for us. Gentlemen, thank you very much for coming in. Thank you so much. Like what you're hearing? Join the discussion with our member subscribers at our website nbr.co.nz. Carl Black is a partner and employment law expert at DLA Piper and is here to talk to me this morning about a proposed bill aimed at clamping down on employers not paying what they owe. Carl, what is the Crimes Theft by Employer Amendment Bill? Right, well this is something that um, has relatively come out of left field from a New Zealand perspective, but it is something, and again we've talked about this before, is across in Australia already in two states. So it's not a surprise in the sense that it doesn't exist as a concept, but it certainly wasn't part of Labor's election manifesto and we didn't really see it coming. So what is it? It's intended to pretty much address the the 0.1% of employers who intentionally don't pay wages and salaries. Um, As with all employment minimum standards, there has to be one size fits all. And the 99.9% of employers who this would never affect are going to be captured by it, however, and which does throw up some interesting sort of side effects, really, because at its heart, the the law is intended to address in a far more serious way the underpayment of salary wages or anything you have to pay under your employment agreement or law. So that would include holidays, holiday pay, anything under the Holidays Act, um, obviously salary wages, but also anything that you are required to pay. And there needs to be an intention not to pay, which is important because, again, as we've discussed before, the Holidays Act, for example, is extremely difficult to interpret. Many employers, large employers, um, with the best intentions and the best uh, advice, still get it wrong, and that's just the way it works. And it's not intended to capture those people who are doing their best and fail. It's those employers that say, right, I know I owe this person this amount of money, but I'm not going to pay it. Right. And what the uh, potential confusion can lie in is, well, what about those who outsource payroll? What about the decision-making process? Um, It's expressly uh, admitted that it doesn't cover, for instance, directors of a company who may aid in a better breach. There may be, um, in the worst possible case scenario, a a situation where a company's board knows this is happening and doesn't address it. Um, Think of health and safety. That's exactly the opposite. You've got direct involvement and buy-in from directors needing to be actively involved in such decisions and can be liable if there are uh, there are problems. But here you've just got the employer uh, who intentionally fails to pay salary wages um, can be a criminal offence as opposed to a civil one. As you say, this is a very limited number of people that would qualify under this bill. Is there no remedy at the moment for this kind of behaviour? Well, that's a very good point. Um, as with all the pendulum swinging over the years of a more employee-friendly work environment or a more uh, employee rights driven um, scenario, we're seeing situations where it's going to be easier or more 
um, the consequences will be more significant. But yes, you're right. There are currently ways. If you're not getting paid by your employer, of course, you can sue them for that. Um, The difference being um, is that if you um, look at some of the cases, and it's, again, this 0.1%, the employers that are out there that we know about um, typically small, maybe retail operations. Um, they may have immigration issues. They may have um, failure to pay holiday pay correctly issues. They're just sort of the recidivist offenders. They now have potentially a far greater motivation to not just simply say, well, we, we're being sued, uh, who cares? Because if you do read various employment relations authority decisions, you'll see something like an applicant appeared and there was no no appearance from the defendant. Um, and a lot of the times it's just simply ignored, or there could be a finding that an employer does owe an employee some um, backdated salary or wages, but they simply don't pay it. This will be that next layer of incentivising by way of punishment um, compliance. Right. So the current ones kind of scoff at the law as it is at the moment. Also, <laughs> it sort of throws up the idea that you'd have to have the wherewithal to be able to sue you know, you'd have to have the money or the the backing Correct. or something. So and that's that's also a very good point because here we've got with obviously a criminal offence, you've got different parties involved. You've got the police, you've got um, the, the court system. Whereas at the moment, it's driven absolutely, as you said, by the employee. If they have the advice um, of a community law office or a lawyer that will assist, then they can get a case off the ground. But maybe they won't. The access to mm-hmm. justice issues are, are prevalent, and this is again intended to assist with. Um, ensuring that that our most vulnerable employees are protected. In here you say, currently offences relating to theft by a person in a special relationship are insufficient to account for wage theft by employers. Can you just explain a little bit about that? Yeah, so that that quite comes directly from the explanatory note to the bill, and it effectively just reinforces the point you've just made, which is that, look, there are avenues already for seeking um, payment of of unpaid salary wages, etc., but they're just not having a deep enough reach. They're not they're not allowing those who desperately need it the most the help that they need. And the hope being that this will um, take the prosecution element effectively away from the employee and into the hands of a prosecutor, say the police. Can I risk asking you a question that could kick off, in theory, a two-hour conversation, but <laughs> we'll keep it brief. How do you prove an intention not to pay? Oh, that, was, that was one of the points I was hoping you'd ask, because we've got a couple of questions about how this is going to work. Firstly, um, the interaction between the agencies. At the moment, you've got employee uh, suing their employer, and that happens in the Employment Relations Authority. It's very simple, very linear. Here, you've got other agencies involved. You've got a, a Crimes Act, which doesn't plug in naturally to the Employment Relations Act. You've got, will, will you have to go to the Employment Relations Authority first to prove you're owed the money and then the police get involved? Um, and that's where under empl- typical employment laws, there's no concept of ready intention. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some uh, aspects of good faith where it needs to be um, an element of not simply omitting to do something you actually need to be, you know, to act in bad faith, you need to, you know, intend to effectively. So proving intent, absolutely um, a grey area. I mean, how do you do that for an employer? You're probably going to need to look for that smoking gun email which says, I know we owe Carl this amount of money, but we're not going to pay it, Um, which clearly, you know, you're not going to probably see. Um, So I think it would have to come down to just an absolute um, uh, evidentiary basis on each case. But it does raise the question of it's not just simply a, you haven't paid me, therefore it's a crime. You've that, that middle step, the intention step, which is critical in my opinion, otherwise it affects the 99.9% far more readily, you have to actively not pay someone and mean to do it. It's almost as though this is um, a stick 
you know, with which to threaten employers because also the maximum penalty is a year imprisonment. A fine of 5000 isn't so bad, uh, but for a business, the maximum penalty is a fine of $30,000. So it's saying, basically, we, this may never come to pass, but you better not do it because this, these are going to be the penalties. Correct. And funny you said about the penalties because looking across to Australia, uh, Victoria, um, one million dollars is the penalty for the for a business. In fact, it's just over a million, um, two hundred thousand broadly for a, an individual, and ten years in prison. So, um, and there have been prosecutions, not at that level, but there certainly have been. This has has worked in Australia. There have been fines. Mm-hmm. I think it was from memory a Seven Eleven um, franchise in in uh, Queensland right. was prosecuted successfully. Um, so look, it's not something that's just in the, you know, theoretical. If this is in place, it, it can be used. Right. Um, and that's probably uh, something that needs to be considered because it's not just one of those bills that you know might not go anywhere and it won't really affect me as an employer. I think the, I keep talking about this 99.9% of, of good employees that would never do this, but it does raise other issues about something like, well, what about an unpaid bonus? Or you, I think that you have not paid me what I'm owed um, and the employee says, well, no, that's at discretion not to pay you. You didn't earn it. And I say, well, hang on. I'm owed it. This is now a crime that you've in, you're intentionally not paying me. It's like, well, hang on a minute. It opens up a, a door that I don't think it was ever intended to do. This mm-hmm. isn't capturing the you know, the, the, the senior executive who's not paid his, his or her bonus. It's intended to capture the, you know, the minimum wage worker that's not getting paid their wages. But mm-hmm. as I say, it's one size fits all. You, it's a law that applies to everybody. Can I just ask you two more things briefly? In Australia, does the bill include punishment for directors? No, not that I'm aware of. I'd need to double check that, but I think that's mm-hmm. a, that is consistent with um, Australia. Now, there are also other jurisdictions, I think even somewhere like Norway has a similar system. I couldn't quite confirm the director element, but again, I think it's just probably expanding it to something that's a bit more complicated and yeah. than it needs to be to, to yeah. add in another layer like that. Right. And just finally, what is the likelihood of this bill coming to pass? Um, okay, so we've got, if it wasn't for the Australian experience, I, I might say that it's a bit more far-fetched, but look, it's it's operating, it's working in Australia. Um, we borrow and, and um, use a lot of Australian laws successfully. Not surprisingly, this has the support of the Council of Trade Unions. Um, and yes, it's election year, and yes, a number of employment law changes have been put on the back burner, so timing is an issue. Um, but again, it's one of those bills where if you think about the policy behind it, it's, it's a bit hard to argue that it's a bad idea. So it's not something that you can easily oppose because you know who's going to you know be able to genuinely say that it, it shouldn't be... Um, shouldn't be greater access to justice and uh, employee rights that are trampled upon should be addressed. It's just the execution. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's time for this week's Economy Matters with Christoph Schumacher. So Christoph, are you saying the OCR is too high or too low? Well, that depends who you ask. Um, if you ask some of uh, the economists of, of the commercial banks, um, ASB has announced a, um, a rate of around 3% as a natural OCR, meaning this is a, uh, an OCR that will neither stimulate nor, nor shrink our economy. So if you ask those guys, they'll probably suggest it's a bit too high at the moment. 
If you talk to the Reserve Bank, they think it's about spot on because they see that initial um, OCR sitting at around five, five and a half percent. Um, but if you look at sort of real time data now and where um, a Taylor rule based OCR should sit to bring inflation back to our target rate, it's a bit too low. OK, you're saying nine percent. A, a Taylor rule based OCR suggests 9%, but that is the value that we would need if we want to get inflation back to our 1% to 3% mandated target that we have in New Zealand. So it's not a rate that looks at how long it will take. It'll be a rate that suggests implement that rate and we get inflation back to our target. Right then and there or within oh, a few well, days? In, in the shortest space that it, it can. There's always a lag between these uh, adjustments and how it filters through the economy. The Reserve Bank is attempting to get inflation back in the box. Would you suggest that the current 5.25 is not enough? Um, Probably not if we are targeting an inflation at around 2 to 3%, because we're still sitting sort of between 65 and 7%, and that is still a bit high for our economy at this stage. So um, the current rate is probably not enough if we want to get uh, inflation sort of back to around the 3% mark. So the 5.5% peak that they've got penciled in may have to be revised? Um, possibly, and uh, I guess uh, the Reserve Bank will check how inflation will track. It's, it is coming down, but let's not forget that some of our everyday items are still uh, skyrocketing. If you see that food and veggies, the, um, the annual inflation rate is 20%. Uh, growth is on average around 13%. Now, these are things that hurt our big pockets every time we go to the supermarket. Why have you brought up the Taylor rule then? Some people are probably yelling at the screen when you talk about this. <laughs> Absolutely, because uh, a 9% uh, OCR would have social implications for all those people who are struggling even to make their mortgage payments as we speak. But it is there as a kind of a reminder of an indicator where it would need to sit if we really believe that 3% is an inflation target that uh, um, we want. Who uses this rule? Uh, the Taylor rule um, guides reserve banks and, and central banks around the world. Um, it was initially developed in the US, but um, even the Reserve Bank in New Zealand, Australia, other reserve banks use it as a kind of guideline of sort of uh, where is the upper level, the upper maximum really. But overall you're saying though that this monetary, this type of monetary policy comes at a cost. Absolutely. Um, and, and if the OCR goes up, we, we, we struggle to um, to pay our mortgages. And New Zealanders have uh, way above average personal household debt in the OECE. We sit right sort of in the top margin, which suggests that if the OCR goes up even further, um, people might not be able to make their interest payment. And then um, houses are on the line and, and livelihoods and so on. So there is a social cost of sort of very aggressive monetary policy. As well with the financial stability report out this month, uh, did you notice anything stark in what the Reserve Bank was saying there? Um, not really, of course. They are pointing out that things are on track, that inflation is under control, that we are going back to um, price stability. And that is correct if you look at the CPI overall, but it's a 
big basket full of 650 goods. So on average, they are on the right track, but the actual cost of living um, is still um, very high in New Zealand. It's a very unaffordable place to live, and that's the reality. Christoph Schumacher, thanks for your time. There has been another year of record activity in the private capital market, with nearly $5 billion worth of combined investments and divestments across private equity and venture capital transactions. And joining me now to discuss the 20th annual New Zealand Private Capital Monitor is Colin McKinnon. He's Executive Director of the New Zealand Private Capital Association. So welcome, Colin. Hi, Fiona. So um, on the investment side, we've got total investment in 2022 was nearly 3 million compared to 1.5 the year before. What's driven that increase, do you think? Yeah, so there was 3 billion of investment this year or in 2022, and a large part of that was what we term large buyout transactions. Um, so it's about 2 billion of uh, large buyout transactions, and then the balance was uh, VC and mid-market private equity. And um, there was only a, perhaps a smaller number, though, in the number of investments. Why, why was that, do you think? Uh, depends which sector you're talking about. So if we're talking mid-market, um, there was a larger number of transactions, but of smaller size. So we had a, 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 a lower average size of transaction, but 37 transactions. It's the largest number of transactions we've ever recorded um, in the uh, venture capital space, uh, there was about the same number of transactions as last year, somewhere. I think a little it was slightly down, though. But slightly down, yeah. But yeah. higher value instead. Correct. Yeah. yeah. So does that um, show that uh, fund manage, managers perhaps are sticking with the portfolio companies they've got and sort of putting a bit more money into them? Well, I think uh, I mentioned that it was sort of a game of two halves in, in 2022. Uh, usually, we see uh, most of the activity occurs in the second half of the year. I'm not sure whether that's got to do with Christmas holidays or why that is, but generally the second half of the year is busier. But last year, the second half of the year was much quieter than the previous year and previous years. So it indicates to me that the marketplace had slowed down a little bit in the second half of last year and particularly in the last quarter. And I think we're seeing now with the recent uh, news out from uh, PwC that M&A transactions were down slightly in the first quarter of this year too. The indications from the market are that uh, this is just people taking a little longer and just waiting for valuations to settle down and people taking more time over due diligence. So transactions are still occurring. It's just a slowing of the momentum, which is probably a good thing because the years 2021 were probably highs in many respects as far yeah. as investment was concerned. It was a bit of a tech bubble in 2021, wasn't there? There so, was, definitely. Mm. Yeah. So does that mean that people are concerned about what the sort of environmental outlook, uh, uh, sorry, the economic outlook is? Oh, well, definitely. Interest rates have a big impact on valuations and uh, while and, and uh, expectations uh, drive market activity. So while expectations are for interest rates to keep rising, that creates uncertainty in the market. But I think what we'll find is that through the second part of this coming year, 2023, once people see interest rates stop rising and have an inclination to go the other direction, that that will create a lot more optimism and certainty in the marketplace.
So there seemed to be quite a bit of activity on the buyout side. Is that a good sign, do you think, that we've got some good companies that people want to buy? Yeah, I, I always think it's it's good to see international funds and international companies buying assets that have grown in New Zealand. The good thing about that is the New Zealand investors get their capital back to reinvest and the executives of those companies generally stay with them in their offshore journey and get international experience which they bring back later on. So overall that process is a good one. The transactions in that large end of the market tend to come and go. Some years there's a number of them, like there was in 2022, and other years there's very little. So there's no particular rhyme or reason to that. Yes, um, and it's been um, a tough market on the on the fund, uh, you know, raising of, of capital for companies, but also for fund managers. There's a lot of fund managers out out seeking funds fund money at the moment. Um, what's the environment like? Do you think? Well, I think the institutions are just once again taking a little more time around their due diligence. They still have a lot of capital to uh, find homes for. Uh, internationally, uh, it's it's known that institutions are still favour private assets as, uh, as a mix, if you like, but the mix within private assets is maybe changing slightly. So uh, private debt is another asset class that's growing quickly. And with rising interest rates, it has uh, good outcomes. Um, And so institutional investors are including that in their private asset portfolios as well. But they're still investing in private equity and venture capital. They they have been absent to a degree in the market in New Zealand. It's only recently that they've come in, isn't it? You're thinking about KiwiSaver funds. Mm. Well, we could have a long interview about <laughs> KiwiSaver funds, Fiona. Um, it's great to see some of the KiwiSaver funds, uh, Booster and Milford and, um, and and others. And New Zealand Super. Oh, well, NZ Super has been there for a long time, so NZ Super is a stalwart in, in the industry. But uh, KiwiSaver funds have been absent, and, um, and there's been less and less reason why they should be, um, but we're still working with them to try and get them into the asset class. I see Movac, um, which announced this week that it, it raised $202 million for its latest venture fund, did have a lot of um, you know those KiwiSaver fund investors in as well. Yes, and hopefully FOMO works there and uh, some of the other funds that, you know, that should be in the market or should be in private assets um, take that jump. And finally, in terms of the outlook, Colin, um, how do you think people feel about the prospects of the sort of economy and and, and where things are going with inflation? Well, with the monitor survey, we ask the fund managers what their outlook is, and we ask them their outlook for six months and 18 months. Bear in mind that this was taken in February when the survey was taken. Um, But in February, the six-month outlook was either neutral or pessimistic. (laughs) <laughs> but 18 months out, there was a glimmer of hope with some optimism coming in. So I think generally, you know, there's a lot of capital still to be deployed and the fund managers have time to look for the good opportunities and they will come again. So is there enough capital for all the companies uh, seeking money, do you think? If you're from the company perspective, there's never enough capital. Uh, but in, and if you're a fund manager, there's too much capital. So the fund managers have got plenty of competition within each other. Bear in mind that Australian funds are are shopping here both in VC and PE spaces. Um, There is plenty of capital around, um, but it's it's not enough to satisfy everybody. There's been a lot more collaboration, though, between the funds, hasn't there? 
Uh, the funds are very careful the way they build their portfolios, particularly in the venture capital end of the market. Um, they would rather have a, a smaller part of something that's big rather than too big a slice of something that's not that doesn't get to be big. And so, yeah, there's a lot of collaboration in the New Zealand market um, and good understanding between funds. You mentioned with the, um, you know, companies being sold that it gave it gives the opportunity to reinvest that money. Are we seeing a lot of those sort of entrepreneurs that um, founded a lot of these companies coming in and, and starting new companies and, and having another crack? Yeah, I, I think the, the best example of that that you're probably well aware of is, is the experience of uh, the Power by Proxy owner, Fatty. Who who um, is just a superstar in terms of the way he's giving back to the community with his knowledge, and of course his family office is now an investor as well. So that, but there's many examples like that of people that come back and reinvest, um, maybe in a different class. They might have made their money in private equity, and then come back and invest in early stage. But all of that's good. So you mentioned uh, you know the people you survey and their outlook. What's your personal view on on, on the outlook? Oh, that's interesting, isn't it? <laughs> um, look, I, I very much my outlook's very much driven by interest rates. Um, I think there's probably a little way to go with the impact of higher interest rates, particularly on the mortgage market, where a number of people have got fixed rate mortgages that are going to come off. That's going to have an impact. I think if we keep going, we are going to see some impact on small businesses. It's clear that the banks and the accounting firms are gearing up for some credit recovery activity. How big that will get, I, I don't know, but there will be some of that. Um, it's just a natural ebb and flow of the marketplace. All right. Well, thanks for your time, Colin McKinnon. Pleasure. Thanks, Fiona. The Motor Trade Association has released its election year policy proposal aimed at whichever party wins power after October 14. To discuss, Chief Executive Lee Marshall is with us now. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure to be here. First, looking at the warrant of fitness structure, you've really hit out at older vehicles. What, what do you see there? What are the issues? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think a few different things. When, when the legislation was changed a number of years ago to move warrant of fitness to um, a one-year renewal, it was done based on vehicles built after the year 2000. Fast forward a few years, those vehicles are now becoming 23 years old, and as such, we think it's sensible to, rather than have a fixed date, uh, to move towards having um, a rolling 15-year target. Um, How do you ensure all vehicles have warrant of fitnesses then? Well, that's a good question. Um, and I think one of the things that we're asking for in the policy manifesto is for government to have a think about what they might be able to do through MSD, for example, um, to alleviate some of the, the problems that we have with people perhaps not wanting to take older vehicles for testing for fear that they will fail. Um, so. and in terms of the ratio of accidents for these older vehicles, do you have data which shows older vehicles are more prevalent to having accidents, therefore more damage? I'm afraid I wouldn't have any statistics like that offhand, but I think what we can say without, without any doubt is um, safety technology has improved significantly with modern vehicles. There's, there's almost no doubt that a, any modern vehicle would be significantly safer than one 10 years old or more. So, mm. yeah. Focusing on the clean car discount, you've called for it to be phased out over time. Why is that? Yeah, sure. So a few different reasons, but I think the simplest one would be we already have 
um, a clean car standard which has come into effect targeting manufacturers. There's no need to have a second system which really achieves only the same thing through a different avenue. One of the things we believe the government could do better is to have a look at, you know, if that clean car discount scheme is currently in a $200 million hole, they continue to talk about it being self-funding, and yet at the same time there's a $300 million grant which they've just topped up by another $100 million. So if it is self-funding, we're not sure on what timescale. We feel like that funding could be better diverted to other things. So if electrification of fleet, for example, was something that we wanted to put energy into, that money would go a long way to removing a lot of the barriers that people currently have to choosing an electric vehicle. Appreciating that for any new vehicle, for example, if someone was going to buy a brand new $60,000 Tesla or a brand new $60,000 $60, Ford Ranger, whether it was 60 or 65 probably doesn't make a lot of difference to either party. But what we do know is it's currently cost the government $200 million. Mm. They've recently announced tweaks to the, the discount and fee scheme. Does that go far enough for you? Uh, no, not at all. And I guess reading between the lines, that's why I mention I know we're looking for it to become self-funding, but given they've topped the scheme up to now a grant of a maximum of $400 million, it doesn't look like it's gonna, gonna happen anytime soon. You're so. also saying that emission standards are unrealistic. Why is that? Emission standards for? The government's clean car proposals and, and the ultimate end goal of reducing emissions. Oh, yeah, sure. So one of, the, one of the pieces that we are calling for is for the government to reconsider the current targets in place. For absolute clarity, we support the intention to decarbonise transport. We're all for that. Um, and we would broadly support any measure that moved in that direction to see that better quality vehicles are brought into the country with a lower carbon footprint. Um, that said, those targets were defined some years ago, and as they currently sit, to give an example, um, pretty much the most fuel-efficient hybrid vehicle that money can buy would be a Toyota Yaris, which uses 3.6 litres of fuel per 100k. That vehicle, by 2027, with the current scheme, will incur a tax. What we're saying is, technology hasn't moved as fast as it would appear the government wanted it to, and therefore it would make sense that the standards are deferred because they're not achievable in their current state. Mm. You're also looking, asking for a reintroduction of a scrappage scheme. Uh, the government recently yep. announced that was on the chopping block with its um, bread and butter focus. Uh, what would your scrappage scheme recommendations look like? Yep. So, of course, we had a scrappage scheme come in a couple of years ago. And I think our reflections on that are that it was a long way from perfect, but that said, there was still something to be said for that. Um, particularly if we're looking forward, any old vehicle that finds its way off the road will invariably, invariably be replaced by something far more fuel efficient and far safer, and thereby will increase the standard of vehicles on New Zealand's roads. Let's not forget, New Zealand has one of the oldest 
fleets of any developed nation. Our average vehicle age is almost 15 years. Um, in fact, if you look at the numbers, um, in excess of 60% of the vehicles on the road are more than 15 years old. So I think a scrappage scheme is a good way, um, dovetailing with, um, with some of the emissions testing um, changes that we're proposing to, to reducing the overall carbon footprint of the fleet. What sort of vehicles or how old would the vehicles be that get scrapped? Well, I don't know that there's any exact answer to that question. Um, but one of the pieces that, that a, a big piece of our, of our policy manifesto that we're proposing to any, to any incoming government is we would like to see emissions testing implemented for the current fleet. And we're saying, based on data that we understand from overseas, for vehicles more than 10 years old to be tested every couple of years. Um, there is no doubt that there, there are currently many vehicles on our roads that would not meet emissions testing standards um, or you know, would need to be tuned to meet them. Um, we're really an outlier when you look in the developed world, along with Australia, to be fair, though I, I don't know that we should be taking our environmental guidance from Australia. <laughs> but um, we're really an outlier in not having emissions testing of, um, of our fleet. And with that, you've also talked about the dire state of the country's roading network. Um, yep. How dire is it from your perspective? <laughs> we know what people tell us and, uh, you know, I think you only have to, to look in the media, look online, talk with or your friends outside. or look outside to yeah. know the condition that the roads are in. Um, so absolutely, we would support any call to, to bring the roads up to standard. Evidently, and things have fallen behind. Why is that, do you think? Lack of funding is probably one piece of it. Um, another piece, and we touch on this in our manifesto, is that um, changes were made um, in recent times to divert um, funding which is captured from vehicle registrations and road user charges so that it could be used for all of transport. What we would like to see is for taxes that apply to vehicles and, and that use the road, those taxes get diverted back into road infrastructure. Lee Marshall, thanks for your time. Thank you so much. Pleasure. And that's been this week's People and Business. Thanks for listening. If you're hungry for more and want to join the discussion, head over to nbr.co.nz.